A generation of both first-time and veteran theatergoers around the world will have her costume designs fixed in their memories thanks to the hit musical Wicked. But theatergoers have also seen her work at seemingly every major regional theater company across the past 30 years, and on New York shows ranging from the U.S. debut of Athol Fugard's A Lesson from Allos to the revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, from the premiere of the musical Spring Awakening to her most recent project, The Retributionist at Playwrights Horizons. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to introduce our listeners to costume designer Susan Hilferty. Hi, Susan. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. I guess we'll start with with the 800-pound gorilla. Wicked. How do you take on a take of material and, and visual material that's so familiar from the original film, The Wizard of Oz, and make it your own. The exciting part about Wicked for me was that it came at a perfect moment in my life, the moment in my life that I felt like I was equipped to address just that question. I felt like the to create a world, to create a whole new world, because I wasn't interested in looking at what Adrian had done, for instance, for the... Um, 1938 musical, or anybody else's hit on um, a way of looking at that world, the world of Oz. But I felt like my my experience not only as a designer for stage, but my interest in creating clothes, my interested my interest in um, um, children's book illustration, my ideas of history were all came together uh, to make it one of the most exciting projects that I've ever had a chance to work on. So we started in to create a world like that. You have to understand what the culture of that world is. If we look around the world and try to understand a culture that's already established, for instance, whether or not it's China or India or New York or Canada, to understand the clothing or the look, you have to understand the culture, whether or not what the temperature is, what the religion is, what the um, what the kind of education might be, what the transportation is. I mean, when you look at clothes or garments or shoes or hair, a lot of it, you realize, was established to deal with cultural things or weather or um, landscape or, or many things. Even if you look down at yourself right now and ask you why you are wearing clothes, it really, you'll think there's probably many reasons you're wearing what you're wearing today because, well, first of all, you probably didn't want to go naked because it's probably not legal wherever you are. You are dealing with whether or not it's hot or cold. Are you going to go into a place that's hot or cold? If you look down at what you're wearing today, you'll think, oh, these fabrics that I'm wearing were invented in um, the in this century, or actually in the last century, for reasons having to do with science or medicine. If you, from your sneakers to the sole of your sneakers to the um, the stretch fabric in your running clothes, so for me to look at this world, we as a group had to really this world of Oz. We as a group, established the kind of culture that it was. Where did it come from? So I imagined that a section of America in 1911, 
back or the turn of the century, back when um, the original novel was written, when Baum wrote the novel The Wizard of Oz, got hoisted off of the earth and spun out into the atmosphere so that the people that grew up from that time had a, a memory of things that were were happening in the world in 1911, but then went off on their own tangent. So when you look at Wicked, you'll see, for instance, it's rooted in the culture, the Edwardian culture. And then I did literally what I call twisting it. I literally twisted everything. So there are top hats, top hats that are cut like an orange that spring open or bustle dresses that are twisted off to the side. Um, there are people wear hats and gloves. There are little things that are linked back to the world that we recognize, but everything is different than what we recognize. So hats, a top hat will have two tops to it, or the there's nothing in it that is really from Edwardian times or really from our times. So that was just the beginning, because I had many other things to invent when I was doing Wicked, whether or not it was the animals of Oz or the... Um, there's just many, many parts that we developed for this production of Wicked. Did you have any specific things that you wanted to? No, I, I think it's interesting, but I will ask you, you say we. There are so many elements because you had not just the issue of the clothes themselves, but you have people who, as you say, are playing quasi-animals, sort of like the island of Dr. Moreau almost. But so, so who's the team? Who do you – you obviously have the director – um, I assume you're doing collaboration with the set designer on creating this world, certainly. But then who's on your team to put that well, stuff Well, when together? I say we, frankly, the most important people to help are, that are the springboard for my design ideas are the writer, the composer, and the um, – so the sound, the, the sound of the music, for instance, is hugely influential – in how I make a design choice. Hmm. So the, these clothes, if I was to do exactly the same script, for instance, and Sondheim did the music, I would have designed it differently. That there's a sound that, that each of the songs... So, for instance, to do Alphaba. For, until I listen to the songs, I have no... I can't begin at all. I have a story, but it's just a bunch of ideas. But the songs, the sound of the songs is hugely influential. Um, I'm in the middle of another musical right now called Wonderland, a new Frank Wildhorn musical. And the it's been, the music has been coming more slowly, I think, than Frank wanted it to come, though now it's coming fast and furious. But until I had music, there's I could have gone even though I had a story, I could have gone in any direction. But the music is the the key. And when a song changes, like in Wicked, the look of Wicked when we were in San Francisco is actually different than what it is when we ended up in New York because we changed the um, – there was a lot of musical changes, a lot of song changes. Do you actually sit and listen to the music while you're sketching? Constantly. Huh. Constantly. And you have to imagine – it's so funny because we all know musicals at the end when it's done. You know, West Side Story. We know what the score is. We know what the music is. We even have a sense of what the look of it might might be from our history. But at the very beginning, we are all imagining 
everything. So I have to that you're listening to the music, which could be the composer singing the song. So there, it's just one instrument in the background. You're hearing a really, really rough, rough track that you need an you need your imagination. So you have to. Um, you not only have you can listen to the sound, but you actually still have to imagine what it's going to be like when it's orchestrated, or when the when um, the singer when Adina is going to sing that song, because it's actually not the music that you're designing to. And the same thing, what I describe the most difficult part about what I do is that I'm always having to imagine all the pieces together in the frame of the stage. But there is no moment that all of those pieces are actually together until you get into the theater for the technical rehearsals before it starts. So even in even if I design a costume, a lot of times I'm looking at pieces of it. I'm looking at the hat in one place, the shoes in another place, the hair in another place. So in each, I'm actually having to put it together what it's actually going to look like on the stage that that everybody in the audience gets it complete. They get it com- done for them. But I have to imagine from what, this, what I think the set is going to look like, what I think the lights are going to look like, what I think the orchestration is going to be, what I think it's going to sound like, and put all of those elements together as I invent my world. You just commented about the fact that you were you have to think of what, say, Adina will sound like as you are working on the costume. Certainly, for the debut of any show, you are working with particular actors and particular body types that have been selected to play those roles. In the case of a show like Wicked, which is now just the New York production, has been through multiple actors in multiple roles, multiply that by the Los Angeles company, by the national tour, by the Australian company, by the English company, etc. Do you have to adjust the show when the show lives as long as a show like Wicked for the various people who play those parts? Or when you design, do you, ha- do you say, no, this is what they're going to look like and subsequent people have to, have to look like the originals? That's, that is, it's a really good question and it's a choice. When we – Wicked, for instance, is a wildly complicated show, complicated on every level – even if you imagine that, for instance, in the first 15 minutes, most of the chorus has done four or five complete costume changes. They've actually complete meaning they've become physically different. They may have worn padding. They just literally within the first 15 minutes. So the tracks are set in for each of the performers. We call it a track. So each of the members of the chorus has a track which literally is their physical track, what they're doing on stage and what they're doing off stage at all times. So you need a really smart traffic cop all the time telling everybody exactly where they're going. So with Wicked, when we made our first changes in terms of casting, the your instinct, my instinct as a designer is to work with each of the performers. I would say the thing that I love the most about, or what, no, I love it all, I have to say. Um, one of the things I love is working with actors where they are creating a role. And a costume designer has a very special relationship 
with an actor because you are literally in a room with a human being who has come to you naked, physically and spiritually naked, to help where my job is to help them, support them as they create a whole new person. So my instincts in something like Wicked when there's a cast change is to try to help them develop their own Alphaba or their own Glinda. But we all knew the team, the um, Joe Mantello, the director, Wayne, the choreographer, myself, it was really clear that if we were to make any changes, the repercussions would be so untrackable that we we can't you can't even imagine. I mean, one of the things that we run into is understudies and swings. And now with with Wicked, there's been so many companies that we have to be really careful. I keep designing different swing costumes because one of the things with Wicked is that it's all of the clothes are one of a kind. Oftentimes in a musical, there'll be a scene in which everybody's wearing the same thing or a variation of the same thing. The end of chorus line when they're all in their perfect chorus line clothes or there's a chorus. Wicked is an anomaly in that it's all one of a kind. So there have been moments where there was the possibility of two actors going on stage wearing exactly the same costume because where everybody else was wearing something different because two understudies came an understudy came from California to be in the New York company and so we really you you can't believe the the tracking that something like wicked has to have oftentimes though because i've done shows where a play or smaller musicals where the um, the leads change. When I did How to Succeed in Business, for instance, um, Megan Mullally created the role of Rosemary. She was gorgeous, fantastic, great, funny. And then Sarah Jessica Parker repl- replaced her. And Sarah was very different physically in terms of her humor, her voice, how she played it. So I completely redesigned her clothes. So I would say it's it's really a choice on everybody's part whether or not you want to get into the complications of making a change or you just want to say just do it exactly as it's done. So Wicked, the brand, looks the same if you see it in the U.S., if you see it in Australia. Absolutely. Though I would also say one of the um, – since we're talking about me being a costume designer, I can share some of the the complexities of what I do. What I when I design a garment, I am dependent on and and for instance in Wicked, it is designed from every bit of hair, every body part, every shoe, every stocking, every garment. I mean, I'm designing uh, from top to bottom, and I'm dependent on artisans, and in my case, in in most times incredible, incredible artisans who interpret the design. Making clothes is, uh, it's it's still one of the oldest art forms. It is where I, I do a sketch on handmade paper with a brush made with animal tail, and I use paint, which is a kind of dirt, and I do a sketch, and I hand it over to a draper, which is the role of the person who's making the costume. And the draper is literally interpreting it. It's not like there's – you can't even draft it out the way an architect drafts out a building. 
So one of the things that I would say that we, I, have to constantly keep an eye out for is that there might be different makers. So, for instance, in London, it's all British makers making the clothes. So, in fact, the clothes, frankly, do look different. Somebody else has taken my – even though we've photographed every inch of the garment, mm. it's a diff- somebody else is making, so it's a different feel. Just as the way I would say that each of the singers, even though each of our Glindas and Elphabas all look alike – they all sound different. They, their clothes look alike. They all sound differently, even though they're singing exactly the same score. They're singing exactly the same music. The same is true with the clothes. Is every every time there's a new maker, it looks different. Hmm. It's 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 fascinating, I think. So, how did you become interested in theater? Where did this all start from? Well, uh, it's all of my interests come. I. Crazy. I have a crazy family, a fantastic, crazy, wonderful family, um, where the arts had no presence at all when I was growing up. We, not that we, I come from a um, lower class background in um, from Arlington, Massachusetts. I, my family is interested in many things, but when I was growing up, the arts was not one of them. But for some mysterious reason, and I. I'm currently the chair of the design program at NYU at the Tisch School of the Arts. And I'm constantly aware that a lot of my students come from backgrounds that are rich in the arts. They may have come with families that were in the theater or the arts, and that's one of the things that inspired them. But there's also always a healthy group, just like me, who it just seemed to come out of nowhere. So ever since I was little, I was a I was performing constantly. I put on plays in the backyard, and I was always drawing and painting, and I was always telling stories. And I started sewing when I was nine. By the time I was thirteen, I was making all my own clothes. So the combination of since I was little being interested in the arts and being interested in making clothes and telling stories and um, I was uh, an actress when I was in high school. My performance as Jean Brody has been favorably compared to Maggie Smith, in case you want me to do a little bit later on. <laughs> um, the So it all just – it was just like this merger. I don't think there was anything else that – I didn't even know what theater design was – until I went to London. I studied in London for a year. Because you went undergraduate to Syracuse and That's I read right. for painting, fine mm-hmm. art. I was a fine art major and I minored in fashion design. And then I was – I did my work study, as every student does, um, down at the theater program where I was a scenic artist. And sometimes I worked in the costume shop because I had those skills. But I had never really seen – I'd never been to New York. I hadn't seen professional theater so to have the experience of going to London and to see professional theater for the first time was so jaw-dropping. I mean, the season, the first season, I saw the original Rocky Horror Show, which was done in a – I remember in a small theater where they – everything was so rough and ready and thrilling – and to to be as I was, you felt like you were part of the event, 
I saw Ethel Fugard's Siswi Bonzi is Dead, which for me was a really pivotal experience, which then went on to play a huge part of my life. And that was with John Connie and Winston Nishano, was exactly. it the original? Mm-hmm. And they were at the, um, so the, at the Royal Court in London. I saw, um, I mean, so big shows at the National. I saw the original Equus. So I started to really... Interestingly, the design of Equus, John Napier's design of Equus, was really critical for me to being a designer because I understood visually, intellectually, and conceptually why what the choice was about, how he used the horses and the idea of of the turntable as an integral part of telling a story, not a background to a story, but that the action was part of the storytelling. Hmm. So I was amazed when I – because it suddenly everything fell into place, that I every, – every part of my background fell into place. So I came running home. I had friends who were working at the Berkshire Theater Festival. I dropped my bags. I raced out to the Berkshire Theater Festival and said, I'll do anything. I was hired as the assistant costume designer and within one show, they fired the costume designer, and I was suddenly a costume designer. Bang! Hmm. It was very quick. Hmm. And and still undergraduate at this point. Still you, undergraduate. Wow. I was still a Jew. I was my junior year. And then you came to New York once you graduated. Came to New York. Just literally had two hundred. What the old story? Two hundred dollars in my po- my pocket. I I um, stayed on a friend's floor. I found a job working as a draper where I was actually making – I was one of the interpreters of clothes. And I got my first apartment, which is frankly the reason I have a career because I was in the apartment for 24 years. Toilet in the hall, bathtub in the kitchen. But my rent was so low 24 years later that I actually never had to take a job to pay rent. Hmm. My work was – I could always – and that's what makes me as lucky as I think I am. But I was always able to um, to take jobs because I wanted to do them, not because I had to make a certain amount of money. You've done the work at Berkshire. You've got this great apartment. But you weren't – you didn't have a degree in costume design. But you started – You. St- Started working right away. This would be I was somewhere in the mid in the mid seventies. Yes, yeah. in the mid to late in the seventies. So, and in that time, well, as any time, when you're young, you seem to be able to do things more easily. I just started. I went to theaters. There was a um, there was a small theater in. Um, it's called in the little church around the corner, the Joseph Jefferson Theater Company. I did shows there. Theater for the New City. There, the Irish Art Center. I started. I started doing scenery at the Irish Art Center. So I became also interested in doing, which I do both. I'm interested in doing both scenery and costumes. Hmm. So the world, the, the New York, is always been a place that you just you can reach out and you find other artists and make things happen. So we may, you know, we you find a group that wants to tell stories the way that you want to tell stories. And you work with them. And then I was also working some – I would take different jobs to make money because none of these jobs, um, none of the design jobs were um, financially lucrative. They were emotionally and intellectually lucrative, but 
um, so that was the beginning. Why the decision then, if you're working, to go to graduate school? Because you ultimately made the decision to go to the Yale School of Drama, and they made the decision to take you. <laughs> well, both of those things were kismet. I mean, it was it was also the perfect time in my life. One of the things that I've learned that from teaching, from being chair, and I interview hundreds of young people who are interested in being designers. So I'm. I tried to I, later on to articulate exactly that. Why would I go to graduate school? And what I would say to all of them, and I'll tell you right now, is that there's a moment that you need time. And I think this is true for any artist. The confusing part is anybody can do it. Anybody can paint. Anybody can write. Anybody can design clothes. Anybody can sculpt. I mean, you just have to do it. Um, But to, to... have yourself rise above just doing it and finding the components, finding the core, the soul, the, the line, the means you've got to invest in a process. So when I was in, what was great about, I did 18, we called them showcases back then in the 70s, which were what has become the off-off-Broadway theater movement. So I did 18 showcases in all sorts of venues, and I was doing and doing and doing. But I realized I I was never truly satisfied with the product. I felt like there was a part missing. So I feel like the same way that a writer goes on a retreat or a um, uh, any artist finds a way to give themselves time. So for me, that's what the experience at Yale was, where I could explore myself, my inner self as an artist, that the challenge wasn't about getting something on stage, which is what you'll... It's amazing. When you have to get something on stage, you actually feel like you could kill somebody. Give me those shoes. I have to have these shoes. I have to have the right shoes on stage um, for that moment on stage. So we, so that's what, that's what I felt. I still believe that graduate school is about undergraduate is more about having many experiences, a collecting experience, collecting history and arts and collecting many, many things that you're interested in. But for graduate school, I believe that you need time off between undergraduate and graduate. I firmly believe that it's better to have a year or two. And then the time that when you get to school, you can, you can invest in texts, in reading texts, and you can truly invest in making mistakes. That's the greatest part is that you just make mistakes. It's You're trying things. Will it work? Can I do this? So that's why I went to graduate school. Now, one of the great things about being a graduate student, be it in acting, design, uh, at Yale is the affiliation with Yale Rep, a professional theater company. And the students have the opportunity to start working on a professional level while they're still in school. You got what turned out to be an exceptional opportunity and the greatest gift of my life at random totally at random can you tell us how you came to work on a lesson from Alos? i would say it was the greatest gift of my life my relationship with athel fugard the writer the south african writer who i think is the greatest living writer um 
began totally as just that, as an assignment. I, as I said before, I was lucky enough to, when I was in London, to see Cesare Bonzi. And I, had, I was amazed at the, the clarity of the storytelling and that the storytelling that you were emotionally moved and charged not by a big event but by a small personal event. And so when the opportunity came to me to design a lesson from Allos um, in my third year at, in graduate school, for some people it actually seemed almost like it was a, oh, it's a small play, it's just three characters, thinking that a costume designer would want to do big, glamorous, wicked-like clothes all their life. But I would describe being a costume designer as being a storyteller, and A Lesson from Aloe is a great story. And it began the most consistent, important work relationship in my life. Athel and I have been working together since 1979. So that makes it our, uh-oh, since um, we're coming into yes. 2009, is a, it's a big anniversary. Um, so, And I worked with Athel as not only costume designer, but the set designer, co-director, and I've directed some of his plays. So we've had a pretty rich and exciting relationship. And a very unique relationship because it, it's – I'm particularly curious about the, the co-director relationship because, you know, you often hear of directors who have assistants or associate directors, et cetera, et cetera. But for you to be designing a show and actually be considered the co-director, what did that involve on a practical level? Well, a lot of it, it literally – it comes from the idea that Athel wears so many hats when he's right. So it began on a, on plays that he not only wrote but, and was directing but was acting in. So it's very difficult for him to be on both sides of the, um, the, the line at the same time. So I, I would sit in the chair while he was on stage. So I truly believe that a costume designer, because of the way that we work with actors, that we're working with them so intimately in developing a character, and that we have to understand the whole arc of the the event, that we in many ways are – we have to act as directors of sorts. Um, not that I would ever direct differently than my – than the director, I wouldn't take control of the the wheel, but it is important that we understand why the director is making choices, why the actor is making choices. So, in fact, because Athel and I were working so intimately, not only over the court from designing the scenery and the clothes, that it was an easy. I was the most the person in the room who had the most knowledge about the development of the piece. So it became an easy segue. And we spent a lot, I mean, with Athel's work, usually we would begin the play in South Africa. So we would do it first in South Africa. Then that production would go to London. Then we would do a New York or an American production, and that American production would would happen in either in New York and then work in one of the resident theaters outside or vice versa. 
So the other thing that became part of our re- the relationship is the longevity of the pieces. Rare, I don't mean in almost every one of the plays that I've done with Athol, we've done probably in six to ten venues. Um, we well, that maybe no, I don't know if that's stretching it. I mean, at most that many, but we would do a production in South Africa, London, Australia, Canada, America in different theaters. So. He needed somebody to be looking at them hmm. as well. You did, on a couple of occasions, direct his plays, presumably without his involvement. Without his involvement. And I'm just curious, obviously, who had you had access to the author, director. You'd been involved in, presumably, the original productions of those plays. Have you had the temptation to do other directing on other playwrights' work? I would love... I would love to do more directing. There's not enough time. I I can't believe how little time there is in this world. One of the things between designing and running the design program, which now I've realized I've been running, been chair of the program for 12 years. So I currently have two full-time jobs. So I'm, I'm, now they're muscles. So I, would say yes, but now I have to satisfy my directing instincts by um, by designing, con- continuing to bring it back to my design work. At any given time, how many shows are you working on? Well, it it uh, it really depends. Before I went to, before I took over at NYU as chair. I spent probably nine months a year out of town, literally traveling all the time. And at that point, I'd be doing 12 to 15 shows a year. So that's a lot of shows to keep in your head. Then, since then, because of, because of my work at NYU, I design less, but I've also been taking on bigger and bigger projects. So it's hard to um, – so like right now, I'm working on six projects – Wow. Um, What are the the current six? Three I can talk about. And three you can't. Three I can't. Um, So I'm working on this Wonderland, the Frank Wildhorn musical that Gregory Boyd from the Alley Theater, who's the artistic director, is directing. I'm doing The Creditors, which is a nasty little Strindberg play um, that Doug Wright, the wonderful Doug Wright, did an adaptation of in his directing – down at the La Jolla Playhouse. There's somebody else. He's trying to move more into directing. He um, loves writing and is interested in directing. So we're working together to um, make it happen. And a new play by Daniel Goldfarb, The Retributionist at the Playwrights Horizons. Hmm. And and three that we can't possibly wrench out of you. No, talk you can't. You know, not right now, but soon. <laughs> Cause, soon, cause I'll some, talk about some them. producer would be very upset. Yeah, or will you just sometimes? There's a moment in each one that you think, oh, this, is this going to keep going, or <laughs> where is it going to go after this? Lee Silverman is directing the show at Playwrights. Sorry, I didn't bring her name into it. You spoke about the relationship with Ethel Fugard. 
it, since it's impossible to go through the literally hundreds of shows that you've done, I do want to ask you about other relationships with directors because it seems that designers develop particular relationships and the directors continue to want to work with them and presumably the designers continue, you know, find it a rewarding relationship. And as I was going through some of your work, a few names cropped up. So let me ask you about them. Just tell me about, about uh, each in turn. Garland Wright. Oh, it was such a loss, uh, such a huge loss for the American theater was the death of Garland Wright. Garland was the artistic director of the Guthrie Theater for many years, but was a fantastic, smart, emotional, personal director who had many shows in New York and um, at the point where he he left the Guthrie and was coming back to New York where he has would do anything, new plays, musicals, etc. For me, not, I think it's a loss for the American theater, but I would say a huge loss for me. With Garland, we did work that spanned the, we did Greek plays, both of us terrified of doing Greek plays because of how complex they are. From Clytemnestra to Electra, um, we we actually it was a we called it the Clytemnestra cycle, three plays with Clytemnestra in them, two musicals, two we did a Babes in Arms, um, a fun play, new plays, classic plays. I've done Chekhov with him, Shakespeare, the range of work. What I would say, I can't even describe the the satisfaction of working with an artist like Garland because he was so complete in his thinking. He was never rushed. He thought not only about the play in in a um, a dramaturgical way, understanding what a play was, but he never did a show that or approached a text that he didn't have a deep emotional connection to. So he to watch him work with designer, I mean with actors, how he would channel that he it was like a that mo, that painting of um, on the Sistine Chapel to watch him touch the actor and the two of them or, or the whole company of actors all responding to his vision. One of the great parts about for me about working with Garland was not only him, but much of her work was done with a company of actors. So it's so rare in the world now that there is a company of actors. There's a BAM is actually starting this idea of a company of actors, which is great. Um, but to work with a group of actors in which you can sculpt a whole range of you can work with you can work with the same actors doing Chekhov and then to do uh, Moliere and then to do a modern play and then to do a musical is uh, an experience that I'm sad to say men, most of our younger theater artists will never have an experience like that. Hmm. Next director, Robert Woodruff. Robert. He's a thrilling, dangerous director to work with. And I say dangerous because he constantly makes you do risky things, to try something, to try it, try it, to explore it. He works viscerally. He doesn't – his 
communication is like it's like holding onto an electric wire. He gets so connected to the material that you hold on to it and you literally feel like a pulse of electricity happening all the time. He 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 only he grapples with the text. He he wrestles with it. You the actors all of you feel like you're um um taking taking risks that you're constantly taking risks at the same time you have the sense that you are building something that um, couldn't have been imagined that you can't predict what it's going to be it's really exciting work working with Robert James Lapine James dreamy James is because of his background as a writer as an editor as a director and as a visual artist I first met James when he was the graphic artist up at Yale Rep when I was a student there. He He's uh, really a mysterious artist who has such a – just a wide background. I mean literally being the writer and an editor. Um, I love to work with him. He is not direct, meaning he's – he – I use the expression that he's an editor, which means he actually understands the whole in a great way. I love working on a new text with him because he can re- – he understands about rearranging the pieces, connecting threads. So you are you are constantly questioning each of your choices, but you know that James really has – uh, uh, that he will he's, he'll be a great guide, that he will get you over all of the chasms that have been created by taking a te- text apart and putting it back together again. Two more. Des McEnough. Des, I'm, I'm going out to La Jolla right now, and I realize that I've done um, 13 shows with Des. And we sometimes had a nickname for him, which was Des Not Enough, because of the scale of his vision. The first, interestingly, the first play I did with him was a, a, a new play, Gillette. And then a lot of what I did with him were, were musicals. Though we did plays, musicals, we've done so many different kinds of things together. And he, Des has a voracious appetite. He brings his, there's a real drive to hear him talk about the play, to talk about the work, is inspirational. He comes with a clear vision that you feel like you, if you just hold on to his feet, you will be going off into magic land. Um, I love working. These are, uh, you're naming all names of people that I love so much. I love to work with them. Um, so Des, he, he can literally, he's, he's like these other artists that we were just talking about. Well, he can, he can do musicals, he can do plays, he can do Shakespeare. He has a huge, huge range. Des is, it's amazing that he's up at Stratford right now because it's really, they're really lucky to have him because the, there are very few artists that have the scope of the work that Des has, that he can handle, he can juggle nine things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Carol Rothman. Carol and I started working together in, I think it's 1981 or two. We, um, on a play called My Sister in This House, um, Wendy Kesselman, beautiful gem of a play. And Carol 
speak at that was it was when the second stage carol is the artistic director of the second stage so she's one of the major architects of the not for profit movement in new york city when you look at when you look around and look at the um, what has happened in the not for the not for profit theaters since the 60s Carol's work in creating the second stage, second stage, moving it to the um, the um, first to the um, McGinn Casal, which is up on Seventy Sixth Street, and then now moving it to the Forty Third Street, and then moving it to a, to a new theater that they're going to have as a Broadway venue. So with Carol, what? The work was always really connected to the second stage, and she was the second stage. She was the theater. So you, with her, the work was always about artists that that were rooted, that she was inspired by, that she brought writers that she brought to the um, um, Tina Howe, for instance, but the writers that she brought to her theater that she wanted to celebrate, that she felt that their work should be seen. Even the name, The Second Stage, which is to allow a play, the second opportunity, a play that was misunderstood perhaps the first time it was out and then to be done again, makes you understand somebody like Carol's um, carefulness in um, identifying writers that she wants to work with and plays that she wants to be part of. So, um, also, I mean, that's all very. These are all long relationships. Relationships I've had for a long time. And I didn't do this just for you to do a litany. You know, I, there is a, a, a method to my madness, which is um, these are long relationships and many shows and many different types of material. Do you adapt to the style of the director? Or do you bring a particular style that the director knows they want? It's interesting because I would – my first reaction is I don't think style has any place in the work that I do, that I would never use the word style. Um, I like to think, especially with the directors you've named, that they all – we every time we take on a new, new script, we're starting from scratch. So I would say that one of the things that these directors would see in me is that they know how much I love to work on on eating a text, read a you know a play, and that so oftentimes they'll ask me to work on something that they're excited about uh, finding a way in that they that they haven't come with an idea or style that they don't want me to be Picasso or Monet or Rembrandt. They want to try to find a way into the, the script and, and hope that I will be part of that exploratory process with them. So I would say for all of us, we don't have any idea what's going to come out at the other end. We start literally with a blank slate. And... Uh, um, well, the, the, the slate's never blank because you have the text. We're starting with a play. But we start with the text, with ourselves being blank, and then trying to find a way into it. Hmm. So I, I would say you'd be hard-pressed to find a style to my work. I mean, I think even if you look at 
Spring Awakening and Wicked that it would be hard for somebody to say it's the same person has designed those shows or my work with Athel. So when you even if you look at the artists that we've just talked about, that none of none of the work that I did for Garland actually looked anything like the other pieces. So but I would say that there's there's something that they want they think that I will bring to the work, which hopefully I think is about the adventure of the rehearsal process, um, thinking, what's going to happen? I have no idea. Since you mention it, let's talk about Spring Awakening for a minute, because that was, before we all saw it, it seemed like a very unusual idea to take the Vatican script from the late 1800s and merge it with an incredibly modern rock score where literally these kids from that period are suddenly whipping out microphones. You talked earlier about listening to scores and designing to the music, but the music was itself very different than the physical world in which um, the characters existed. How do you how do you merge those? Well, uh, Spring Awakening was one of the surprise experiences for me. Spring Awakening, it's always been one of my favorite plays because it's kind of unsolvable. It's not you 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 try and try and try, but you can't you can't the there's there's things in the end, they call it the mysterious man, the masked man at the end. It's and Michael Mayer I'd run into Michael Mayer at a party and he said that he was working on something called Spring Awakening and I said well, if anything happens with it, it's my favorite story. Call me. So he called me, and I first, when he first asked me to do it, I thought I was going to have to go in and protect the name of Vatican because anybody who would try to make a musical out of it is a Philistine. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Michael Mayer so channeled not only the material, but channeled the the music, this com- which seemingly completely different music to the story, and was able to be literally take all of the artists involved, the set designer, Christine Jones, the set designer, Kevin Adams, the, set des- the lighting designer, myself, the um, choreography, Bill T., the choreographer, and all of us, through Michael, were able to create a world that you couldn't you couldn't have predicted where we were going. That was the kind of experience. By putting us all together and listening to the music, doing workshops where we heard and understood different ways of putting the music together, I think that the magic moment in Spring Awakening was that moment that you just described, which is when during one of the workshops we had the boys reach into their coat pockets and take out a microphone that suddenly we could see both worlds living a contemporary world and a world of the 1890s living happily, viably together in this one space. So I feel like what I tried to do with the clothes, for instance, is that you can look at them at two in two ways. You can look at them and think I'm looking at something that's completely period or they can live happily as contemporary clothes, that it depends on the lens in which you're looking at that moment. 
the, the moment, the lens at the moment that you're looking at them. So I feel like the the whole spring awakening experience was one of the one of those perfect experiences where you feel like everybody is telling the same story, that everybody's involved in um, having each mo- understands how to make each moment ring really true. And Michael Mayer was an incredible leader on that production. Hmm. We often ask actors if there's a role they'd like to play, and they're quick often to say, well, it may be a role that's not written yet, so how can I tell you? But is there an existing play or musical that you've always said, boy, I'd really like to try my hand at that? No. What I would say is that there are existing directors that I would love to work with. That I mean, I have an insatiable appetite for for telling stories, but... I believe that the the relationship of of working with a director on a play is the thing that would that that takes me that that will take me wherever I want to be. So Joe Mantello could call me and anything that he'd want to do, I would want to go through to have that experience with him. The other directors that we talked about before, that if there's something that they're interested in going, then that would be that so it's there are directors that I want to work with, and it's and I'm assuming that they would find the script the the script that I would want to be part of. Mm-hmm. Coming back to your experience teaching mm-hmm. at uh, at NYU, what is it that you try to impart to the students? What what are do you have particular things that you feel they should know, or is it always about just cultivating the the individual impulse of the individual artist? I would say the latter. It's always about them finding the artist within themselves. That there's there's certain things that you can learn by observing other artists. That you can learn as a painter by looking at great painters and great paintings and but the that in many ways just makes you an audience i mean we can all we're all great audiences we'd love to go and to a museum and be inspired by a painting or sculpture or go to the theater and be inspired by a performance or a direction or the or the whole but to understand how to Find it within yourself to trust yourself enough to to get away from all of your fears to because I think fear is the great destroyer of artists, but to find a way into yourself and then trust yourself enough to express it is the um, is what I try to do in teaching. Every artist has to have tools, so for instance, a dancer. Has their body is their tool that they're constantly having to exercise, and so there are there are dancers who are great in their heads, but it's only the dancers who are whose bodies are um, their tools can express what is in their heads that become the great dancers. The same with any um, any artist that they have to also understand their tools. So one of the things that is critical for me in a teaching program is that that there's a balance, not only finding who the artist is, but that you're also developing your skills 
whether or not it is the skills of drawing or building architecture or the, um, the craft. It's really the craft is part of it. The, being a designer also requires you to – we are constantly creating new worlds or creating worlds from the past. So we have to be, we have to be very experienced in understanding history, architecture, art history, fashion history, stories. So I could do – I do plays. I'll do a play about India or I'll do a play about America in 1777 or a play about um, the future or a Greek play. So for me to be able to – or any designer, to be able to create a culture, we have to have enough experience to draw on, to bring to our work. So a lot of what we also do at, in, in my program is to make sure that, that, that there's a real appetite for under, uh, understanding history. So play, uh, a literature, art. So the students are constantly being exposed to everything that will help them be a better designer. So the craft, the dramaturgy, the actual um, designing, where do ideas come from, all all of those things. I know that sounded very confusing what I just said right then, but but bringing the whole mixture to the, the plate so that each of the students can then, as an individual artist, know what to take from it to create their work. This may be the silliest question I've ever asked, but I'll risk it. How do you decide what to wear when you get up in the morning? How do you design Susan Hilferty? Well, I I actually think that many designers are um, – it's not a silly question because it is – it's what I do to create a character. I think that um, I, we all, I think, create a kind of uniform. So I think it's – pretty not, that's not true of just designers but i ride a bicycle so i have to have clothes that i can ride a bike and then get off the bike and go and and make people know that i'm a designer so they have to solve physical problems um i um i i'm, I'm never so I'm, i feel like i'm solving three problems at the same time my most of my wardrobe if I put on high heels, it's dressed up, and flats, I'm dressed down. So I can wear anything I wear from morning, noon, or night. So I have a very practical wardrobe. It can all go in a suitcase. Nothing needs to be ironed. I don't own a thing that needs to be ironed. So I can stuff it all in a suitcase and then take it out. So once you follow those rules of my culture, of of all of that, then you pretty much know what to shop and um, buy for me. So I'll give you my size so you know what to give me for my birthday. (laughs) Well, on that note, we'll find out off the air when your birthday (laughs) is. And I'll say, Susan Hilferty, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you so much for having me. Our engineer for this episode of Downstage Center is Chad Bernhard. Our director of web development at the American Theater Wing is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. 
Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.